Welcome to the Gay Man's Life Coach Podcast, the podcast for high-achieving gay men who have gone to therapy, want to feel better, and get exactly what they want in life. I'm your host, Harvard Law-trained founder and life coach, Jonathan Herzog. Welcome back, friends. This week, we have a special guest joining us, journalist and author Jamie Kershick. You'll hear more about and from Jamie in just a moment, but I wanted to quickly reflect at the top for just a moment on a couple of takeaways from our conversation. First, some historical context. Just a brief snapshot of the recent modern era in the United States. Being gay was only removed as a mental illness by the American Psychiatric Association less than 50 years ago. 30 years ago, one in 10 gay men died from AIDS. One in every 10. Being gay was only decriminalized in the United States 20 years ago. Being gay and legally allowed to marry only became the law of the land seven years ago. Now, Jamie's new book on the secret gay history of Washington focuses on gay men in the context of the U.S. halls of power during the mid 20th century, 21st century. But the lessons and takeaways for our purposes are resoundingly clear. First, this story has never been told before. And just as code scripts machines, media scripts humans. And that is the media we consume, the movies, news, social media, become the default scripts for our lives and what we consider possible. It's why your information diet is as important as your food diet. In any case, stories of gay men that don't center around them as the butt of the joke, dead or dying, are far and few between. Second, until about 20 years ago, being gay was the gravest sin in American politics. At the height of the Cold War, it was safer to be a communist than a gay man in America. Third, irrespective of any of this, High-achieving gay men have for long been performing in the highest echelons of achievement, demonstrating both a singular resourcefulness and tenacity combined with great dramatic tragedy. DC, as Jamie put it, was a magnet for gay people with the best little boy in the world complex. It also chewed them up and spit them out. Like the devoted aide to Lyndon Johnson, whom he treated as a son, yet abandoned once his homosexuality was discovered. Overperformers, perfectionists, externally validated, and yet carrying this shameful, often lethal secret. With that, we have James Jamie Kerchick, who is a journalist and author, most recently of Secret City, The Hidden History of Gay Washington. Jamie has written for the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, the Atlantic, and many, many others. He's a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, was a fellow at the Brookings Institution, the Foreign Policy Initiative, began his career at the New Republic and recognized for his voice on American gay politics, international gay rights, is a recipient of the National Lesbian and Gay Journalist Association Journalist of the Year Award. The bio goes on and on. But Jamie is a graduate of Yale, boo, and our esteemed guest in the midst or at the beginning of a book tour, getting rave reviews. James, Jamie, welcome to the Gay Man's Life Coach Podcast. Thank you for having me. Of course, thank you for joining us. 
So, Jamie, to start us off, what is the secret gay history of Washington? Well, Washington is a city that is run on secrets, secrets of the form of currency, the form of power. Um, if money uh, is what runs New York, say, and if fame, celebrity is what runs uh, Hollywood, then I would say secrecy has uh, long been, certainly in the period of time that I'm writing in my book, uh, secrecy is a form of currency. And uh, in the 20th century, there was no more dangerous secret than to be gay. And this roughly coincides with the rise of America as a global superpower uh, with the world. Um, so before World War II, being gay was a sin, obviously. It was condemned in Western civilization, in Judeo-Christian tradition. Um, it was illegal, certainly. But it was not a national security threat. And that begins to change with World War II when America enters the world, really, as a global superpower. It develops a bureaucracy for managing sensitive confidential information. And that is when uh, this secret of being gay goes from being a personal uh, sin, you could say, to being a national security threat. And so the book traces the evolution of that secret from World War II until 1995, which is when Bill Clinton uh, lifted a ban on gay people receiving security clearances. Uh, so those are the those are the bookends of the book. How did you come to writing this book in the first place? Just taking a step back for a moment. Well, I've always been interested in Cold War history and just the Cold War as a as a phenomenon. Um, you know, everything from uh, movies about spies to the actual serious intellectual debates that went on among Western intellectuals. Um, Really, I've always been fascinated with that. It's what I studied in college. Um, and I sort of traced the origins of this book to a class that I took uh, when I was uh, a junior at Yale with uh, Professor John Lewis Gaddis, who's the Dean of Cold War Historians. And he was teaching a course on the art of biography. Uh, and he's a biographer himself. He wrote George Kennan's biography, George Kennan, the great Cold War strategist. And so every week we, we would read a, a different biography and discuss it. And the final project for us students was to write a biography of a figure, living or dead, whose papers were held at Yale in their archives. And I was lucky because Larry Kramer, who was a mm. Yale graduate, the AIDS activist, playwright, um, he had just donated his papers to Yale, a very mm. large collection of them. And so I chose Larry. And so I started researching in his papers and I interviewed him in New York and he and I came to be friends. Um, and then after I left Yale, I moved down to Washington and, you know, living here and um, understanding that gay, realizing how gay this city is, hmm. kind of always has been, um, combined with my interest in Cold War history I sort of came to the realization that, you know, there's all there's, there's this whole story waiting to be on to, to, to be told. Um, the story of McCarthyism and homosexuality, the story of the State Department and homosexuality, of the CIA and homosexuality, of the civil rights movement, of the Reagan phenomenon, the Reagan revolution, basically all this American political history high politics, right? Sort of 
the chambers of power, the quarters of power. Um, and I just realized that there was this sort of invisible thread that was running through everything. Um, and then no one had told it before. You know, there was one book on the Lavender Scare, which is the 1950s purge of gay people from the State Department mostly, but other government agencies. Um, it's a short book. It's an academic book. It's a very good book, but it, it was not written for a wide popular audience. Um, and really, aside from that, there's nothing been written about this subject. Uh, and I realize it's actually a major subject. Um, it's a really important one, and it's had a profound influence on our politics. Um, and so that's when I realized, you know what, there's a, there's a book to be written, a pretty big book to be written, and just in terms of length, but also, I think, in terms of subject matter, too. Hmm. Tell us, like, two or three of those stories, if you could, uh, that really illustrate, as you say, the sort of high power, uh, mm. high stakes elements of this secret gay history of Washington that you are alluding to. Yeah, well, one is uh, probably the biggest scoop in the book involves a conspiracy, really, a conspiracy theory that Ronald Reagan was controlled by a clique of gay advisors. Okay. <laughs> um, and we laugh at this now, but it was actually taken quite seriously. Mm. And it goes back to, I mean, you can really trace this, I think, to when Ronald Reagan was starting as an actor in Hollywood. Um, and Hollywood, you know, it's full of creative people, artsy people, right? And so there's this kind of association of Hollywood and gayness. And this goes back a long time. This is not a contemporary association. It goes back to the silent film period almost. Um, but in one of Reagan's first movies was called Dark Victory. He, he plays the friend of a character uh, who's played by the actress Betty Davis, who's sort of a gay icon. But anyway, in his memoir that he published while running for governor in 1965, he recounts the direction that was given to him by the director of this movie, who basically wanted Reagan to play the role of a gay best friend. And they couldn't be explicit about that because there was something called the production code in Hollywood, which made any discussion of homosexuality prohibited. You weren't allowed to even refer to homosexuality. Now, there were ways of getting around this, right? You could have maybe a very effeminate character or whatnot, and that's how they did it. But it was a very, it was a very taboo subject. And so Reagan is sort of describing uh, the way the director is explaining this to him. And he says he wanted me to play the role of Alec as if he could uh, dish the dirt with the girls in their dressing room while they're getting changed, which is sort of a you know very kind of euphemistic way of just describing a gay man, right? So Reagan's very uncomfortable about this. Even playing the role of a, of, of, a, of a gay character in a film makes him uncomfortable. And then in 1967, when he's governor, there's a, he's, his administration is rocked by allegations that they're that his advisors were engaged in a, in a homosexual orgy at a uh, timeshare in Lake Tahoe. Uh, this was written about in a syndicated newspaper column and, it, and it's a, a pretty major scandal for Reagan and he ends up firing two of the aides. Um, and then what I've uncovered is that three weeks before the 1980 presidential election, a group of Republicans brought um, a further set of allegations which are described in the book um, to Ben Bradley, the, exec the legendary executive editor of the Washington Post, uh, that Reagan was basically a Manchurian candidate and that he was being controlled by a group of right-wing anti-communist gay 
manipulative advisors. And the Washington Post investigated this story. They sent out reporters, including Bob Woodward, to investigate it. Um, they turned up no evidence of anything nefarious. They, they did turn up evidence that there were some gay men working for Reagan. Um, and they ended up not publishing the story. Um, but I uncovered all the notes that went into the writing of it in Ben Bradley's papers. And so I think that's, I think an example of something that shows you really the power that the idea of homosexuality had in American politics. It was almost a kind of um, hallucinatory power. I mean, it could, it could instantly destroy a political career if someone was revealed as being gay. And it was worse than being a communist because a communist could become an ex-communist and in fact, some of the most important figures in the American conservative movement were ex-communists. But a, a gay person was forever condemned. There was no coming back from that, at least in the period that I'm writing about, really, from the 1940s to the early 1980s, really, is when you know, Gary Studs is the first um, congressman to come out of the closet, sort of against his will. Um, but he decides to stay and run for re-election. And he wins. And this is in 1983. Um, and that had never been done before. You know, when it, when, when, whenever someone had been exposed as, as gay in American political life, it was the end for them. It was over. Um, and so that really went on, um, you could say, from the early 1940s for until 1983. There seems to also be a lot of death that happens along the way. Um, could you share a bit about how some of these promising gay men you talk about who climbed the ranks to were these senior advisors amongst the administrations uh, in high agencies. What, what happened? Well, yeah, it's interesting when you're writing a book, um, you get so lost in it that sometimes you don't realize some of the big themes yourself. And the New York Times review that appeared this week um, begins with just a recitation of some of, not all of, but some of the men who killed themselves or died in some way related to homosexuality. Um, There's a State Department employee who hung himself at the start of the Lavender Scare. It was in 1953. It was just the first week of the Eisenhower administration. So um, it's a tragic story. There's a senator the following year, Lester Hunt of Wyoming, who's not gay himself, but his son was arrested for solicitation in Lafayette Square, just across the street from the White House, which was the main cruising ground for gay sex uh, in the mid-century, or actually even dating back to the late 19th century. His son was arrested for solicitation and some of Joe McCarthy's allies were gonna threaten to expose this. Uh, and the Senator walked into his office one day, brought a shotgun, and this is not unusual in the 1950s, particularly for a senator from Wyoming. So the guard didn't think anything of it, walked up to his office, shot himself in the head. Uh, the first and only time that there's been a suicide in the, in the Capitol complex. Um, there are many men who were murdered um, in the course of, of cruising. This was something that happened quite frequently, actually, back, you know, decades before Grindr, um, uh, when many more people were in the closet and even people who didn't want to go to gay bars because they were so deeply closeted, they would seek sex in public parks, in public places, public bathrooms and whatnot. Um, 
And in the mid to late 1970s, there were a spate of what the police called homosexual murders. And these were men who were basically roughed up and robbed by, um, you know, straight men trying to get money from people in very vulnerable positions. And, you know, to be a gay man, you know, working in the government in the in this period of time puts you in a very, a very vulnerable place, right? And so um, if you were robbed by someone, say, while cruising for sex in a, in a park somewhere, you wouldn't want to go to the police because that would be perhaps implicating yourself in solicitation. And so these men had really nothing, had nowhere to go. Um, and in the, the late 70s, there were a spate of these, of these murders. Uh, there was a fire in a gay porn theater in 1977, the, the Cinema Follies. It was a real rundown, not very pleasant place in, in one of the more um, depressed parts of Washington and Southeast. Uh, and there was a fire in the theater and nine men were killed. And there was a big debate in the newspapers in this town in Washington, you know, do we publish the names of the victims? Uh, and normally when there's a fire and people die, there's no question you publish their names. But for this, the Washington Post, they initially published some of the names, but then they decide, then they declined to publish the rest of them. And the ombudsman for the paper actually wrote a pretty critical piece saying, you know, by not naming these men, we are, we are perpetuating the stigma against gay men that would lead them to sort of seek out uh, places like this, you know, to, 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 to visit a kind of anonymous uh, gay porn theater in a, in a depressed part of town that we are perpetrating this, this sort of prejudice. Um, so secrecy really ruled gay lives um, in Washington in this period. Um, that was really the, the defining trait um, to be gay was to have a, to have a secret, a really, really dangerous secret. What was the biggest change? If you can point to. Um, I would probably, hmm. I mean, what sort of changed this? Changed the tide, yeah. It's really people coming out um, and there are different phases and stages of it. So, you know, I could point to 1957 is when Frank Kameny, who is the, um, he's, a, he's an astronomer in the Army Map Service, which is today the Geospatial Intelligence Agency. He's fired because he's gay. And then he becomes the first of, you know, all the thousands of gay people who had been fired up to that point. They would just slink away and, you know, maybe leave Washington or try to find another job. None of them challenged their firing not because they were cowards, but because, you know, to openly declare yourself gay in the 1950s, I mean, that was, no one had done that before uh, until Frank Kameny decides, you know what, I'm going to sue the government over this. And he's really, you could say, one of the first or maybe the first sort of American public figure to kind of come out of the closet. That's a major moment. Uh, in 1963, on the eve of the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom, Martin Luther King's famous march, Strom Thurmond outs on the Senate floor, Bayard Rustin, who was the organizer of that march, a brilliant African-American civil rights activist and strategist. And he's outed by Strom Thurmond. Um, the leaders of the march, Martin Luther King and some of the other civil rights leaders, they could have fired Rustin. They could have dropped him and said, you know what? This isn't worth it to keep you. But they decide not to. They decide to keep him on and to defend him. 
And that's a major moment. That that might be the first moment in history where a public figure has been outed and then survived it career-wise. Um, Stonewall is obviously a major moment, but that doesn't, I don't really cover it that much in my book because it happens in New York. Um, I mentioned before, you know, Gary, Gary Studs from Massachusetts surviving his own brush with scandal. I think AIDS is a huge part of this story because AIDS does two things. It forces a lot of people out of the closet because there's no hiding it if you're sick. And then it also, it also shows that gay people are everywhere um, in all different strata of society, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative, black, white. Um, and I tell one of these stories of one of the most powerful conservative right-wing figures in America at the time was a young man named Terry Dolan, um, who was gay and died of AIDS. And I think that was a real shock to many people on the right because they didn't think, they thought gays were all, you know, hippies and leftists and whatnot, right? And then to see one of the most influential conservative political activists um, die of AIDS, uh, I think was a real sort of uh, reckoning. It, it, it forced reckoning. Um, and then Bill Clinton's campaign for the presidency, I think was very important too. He was the first presidential candidate from a major party to openly appeal to gay voters. That had never been done before. Um, pre presidents were, you know, purging gays from their administrations and they didn't want to be associated with gay people or gay topics. But then Clinton gives a speech to um, a gay political fundraising group in Los Angeles and it's a major moment. And then his administration is openly recruiting gay people to serve in it. You know, the policies that they pursued were, they were obviously left much to be desired. There was Don't Ask, Don't Tell. There was the Defense of Marriage Act, um, which were certainly um, steps backward. But just in terms of the visibility and sort of overcoming that secrecy, the Clinton administration is important. And also then he lifts the ban on gay people receiving security clearances in 1995, which is a major, a major development. And that's really why, that's where I end the book. Because at that point, being gay was no longer, it didn't need to be a secret. Obviously, you had people still in the closet, of course, uh, and you still do. But in terms of the government sort of mandating this, mandating that gay people remain closeted as a condition of serving their country, um, that ends in 1995. There seems to be this dual nature of these high-powered gay men that you detail and tell their stories of, where they are in positions of high-level advising in senior halls of the government. Um, and maybe this is in a review of the book, but they talk about how gay men had to develop studiousness, compartmentalization, discretion yeah. to survive. And Andy Tobias's notion of gay men, gay boys, as the best little boy in the world complex. And you said, or it was said about you, that Washington chewed them up and spit them out. So tell us what this means and tell us this, like, how this dual nature of the high achieving, the high level advising, mm. high halls of power combined with the death, the secrecy, the being chewed up and spit out. Yeah, um, I, I cite the anti-Tobias thesis in my book. and I think it's very true. And I think it's one of the things you realize when you come to Washington. Wow, there are a lot of gay, very high achieving, um, overachieving, you might even say, very professional, um, 
gay men in this town. They're chiefs of staff, they're press secretaries. Um, now they're openly gay politicians and leaders of organizations and whatnot. But in the period that I'm writing about my book, and really up till recently, you would see them kind of, these gay men kind of behind the scenes, right? Or they're working for lobbying organizations. Um, and I do think that this city sort of attracts that type, that kind of best little boy in the world type. Um, very devoted, you know, loyal, um, willing to work long hours, uh, available to, you know, answer that 2 a.m. phone call from your boss, right? That's a particular type. And I think there's a particular type of gay man, not all gay men, certainly, but a particular type of gay man who fits that profile. And that's why they've always been coming to this city, really, or certainly since the period that I'm writing about, really, with the kind of rise of the federal bureaucracy during the, during the New Deal. Um, and Washington just became a very attractive place for gay people in, in, in general during the New Deal, because it, it was a booming city. All these new federal agencies were growing, and then the war came, and you had a, a massive military mobilization and a need, just a need for lots of young people to come here. And if you're a young gay person, you know, in some isolated pocket of America, then Washington's a very attractive place for you. Um, but it made a lot of these gay men vulnerable because Washington, you know, I say in the book, Washington was simultaneously like the gayest city in America and for the reasons I'm describing, um, but it was also the most anti-gay city. Mm. It was a city, it was a city of purges and it was a city of, you know, you had to present a public face, mm. right? That's, that's what politics is about, presenting a public face, but you could not be openly gay. That was the worst thing to be. So it's this paradox where you have all these gay men coming here, but they can't really be themselves. Uh, and that creates a lot of tension, a lot of dramatic tension, I think, um, in, in the book. And I, and I explore that in the, in the book. One uh, big theme we talk about in the context of the gay man's life coach is how gay men are socialized and taught to see themselves as not leaders, as sidekicks, as helpers, mm. as senior advisors, for instance, to yeah. the principal, the leader, the CEO, uh, the candidate. And it's really interesting for me to map this on to the detailed graphic Corey history that you lay out. And so I'm, I'm curious, do you also see this kind of like direct line of causation to the thinking, the habit patterns of the mind of gay men today? Hmm. Um, I think things have changed a lot for the better. And we see now gay people, openly gay people, gay men in positions of leadership. I mean, a couple of years ago, we had the first openly gay secretary of a military branch of the army, uh, Eric Fanning. Um, that's a big deal, you know, to have an open, this is an institution that just until very, you know, until 2011, I believe, uh, banned gay people in the military, right? And so then to have um, the, 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 the secretary of, of a branch be openly gay and for it not to create any problems, like it just, and you don't hear about there being problems with gays in the military anymore. It seems that our society, uh, and that's one of the most conservative institutions in the country. I, I think Pete Buttigieg's campaign was really important in this regard. Um, it seemed like the most opposition to him didn't come from, you know, right-wing homophobes. It came from like the queer left. I mean, there was a group called Queers Against Pete. And I mean, I, I know you, you, you were involved in a, in a 2020 campaign. So you, you, you probably saw that where they were disrupting his events. And I remember all these articles would come out from like 
you know, gender studies professors saying, oh, he's not really gay. He's not, you know, he's not really queer, whatever. And I just found that it was obnoxious and annoying, but in a way it was sort of a good sign because it showed that, you know, hey, we have an openly gay man running for president and it's like people don't really care. In fact, it probably helped him. You know, it was it, it made his camp candidacy a lot more interesting. Um, so I think it might take more time for to, to see more gay people, you know, um, rise to these positions of leadership. But I think it's happening. Um, and I think having these public figures in these roles, I think, is really important, you know, to have a person like Pete Buttigieg, regardless of what your politics are, but just just to have someone who's openly gay and you know, has a husband and brings him to events and has children uh, who's in the public eye. Um, I think that I think that's a really important thing for for younger people, particularly for younger gay people who, unlike me, you know, didn't grow up with those political role models, at least. Just to uh, take on that for a moment, I think this is something you've written about and some some others in uh, the past number of months and years around the kind of squeezing from the far left and the far right and gay men um, itself a term being a radical term to use, being squeezed in the middle. So maybe can you touch on that a little bit um, about uh, gay manhood and what that looks like in this year in 2022? <laughs> um, I think we've seen that gay manhood is just like manhood period, you know? Mm. And it, there used to be stereotypes of gay men that we were all, um, effeminate sissy that's the word that was commonly used sissies and i have nothing against effeminate gay men there's nothing wrong with them so you know it's not a it's not a problem uh, i think we should we need to be expanding our uh notions of what it means to be a man or a woman that we shouldn't have these sort of constricted gender expectations but i think you see now i think most people understand now that those those are stereotypes right and so that yes there are effeminate gay men um, but those were the only ones that we were allowed to see in pop culture and whatnot. But now I go out in the world and I see that gay men come in every different variety, just like straight men do. And there are, you know, butch gay men, there are skinny, uh, you know, skinny gay men, there are fat gay men, there are gay men of all different types. Um, so it's hard to even, I don't think there is one type of gay manhood anymore. I think that's a good thing. I think it's, you know, just shows you the the full diversity of gay people, and that we're just as diverse as any other identity group. On that note, could you tell your story as a gay man? What do you what what what, what do you want to know? <laughs> I guess what what was your experience? What is what is your story in this world? You're a prominent thought leader, journalist, author now, um, but I'm wondering what Jamie from 20 years ago think about you now, or how did um, you come to where yeah. you are? So I, I didn't come out until college, until my freshman year. It was like three weeks into freshman year. I was waiting to get out of high school. Um, I, I went to an all boys high school, um, which just at the time did not feel like um, a good place to come out of the closet it's changed for the much for the better over the past 20 years. But at the time I just didn't feel like I could do it. Um, but I came out three weeks into being an undergraduate at Yale. 
Uh, and it was a very welcoming place to be gay. It was a real, I think that was a really profound, I think for a lot of gay people going to college, maybe it's changed now, maybe high school is, you know, I think high school is a lot easier, but I think I'm 38. So I think men of my generation of sort of older millennial generation, I think going to college was a, for many of us, a transformative moment. And that was kind of the first real welcoming place. Uh, I was very fortunate. I had, I had a family that was entirely accepting. Um, and I do need to recognize that that is a privilege in some way because uh, far too many people don't have that acceptance from their family. Um, and I guess being gay has definitely informed my, um, my writing, my view of the world. It's something I'm very interested in, the, his the history of homosexuality as a phenomenon, how, how it's been viewed in society, uh, how different societies deal with this issue of homosexuality, something that fascinates me. Uh, I've worked as a journalist overseas. And I think one of the great parts about, well, maybe the best part about being gay is that you can you know, parachute into any city in the world or even village and you can find other gay people. And that's a kind of instant connection that you'll have to a different culture that other people don't have. You know, if you're straight, like that's whatever, you know, most people are straight. That's not interesting. That's not, no one's gonna, no one's gonna be interested in that if you just, you know, show up in some foreign country where you don't speak the language. But, you know, you can, you can show up in, in Japan and walk into a gay bar and there's a whole group of people there. Uh, and you have something in common with them. And that's something really special. It's actually something that's interesting, I think, that I also learned when writing this book is that that aspect of homosexuality, it's, it's, a, it's, it's prevalence in every strata of society, right? Rich, poor, black, white, um, Jewish, Gentile, whatever. That aspect of it was really frightening to people. And this would come up constantly in a lot of the rhetoric that surrounded the sort of uh, the homosexual menace or the homosexual threat, right? Is that it's everywhere. Uh, and that this, this makes um, homosexuals potential spies, right? Because they can go into any society and, um, or that they have a loyalty, but not to their, their own country or their own society. They have a loyalty to what was once called the Homintern, the Homosexual International, right? And it's, it's kind of similar to sort of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories too. Um, and I, you know, there's this, there's this book, it was a very, very popular book in 1951 called Washington Confidential. And it was this kind of, you know, pot, it was a kind of a scandal mongering, muckraking book about, um, you know, sex and scandal and, and communists and prostitution. And they have a chapter on homosexual Washington. It's called The Garden of Pansies. Um, and repeatedly, the authors are sort of astounded that, you know, gay people would, uh, black and white gay people would mix, right? And Washington's a segregated city in 1951. Uh, and they would write with sort of uh, astonishment that, you know, Southern, you know, white Southern gentlemen would be meeting with, with Negroes. Uh, and this was horrifying to them. Um, and so that, you know, so what's what was horrifying to, to people in that era, I find to be this incredible aspect um, of, of being gay and something that's really, that's really to, to, to treasure about it. How do you think about the word itself, uh, choosing between homosexuality 
gamma and gayness. Do you, do you think about that much or at all? Yes. And um, I make, I have a footnote on page two. It's the only footnote where I sort of explain the language I use in the book. Um, and I understand that homosexual has a clinical term and it wasn't until 1986, you know, that the New York Times stopped using homosexual and they used gay. Um, but in my book, I want to use language that is, you know, redolent or appropriate for the time in which I'm writing. So I do use homosexual quite frequently in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. Then I start using gay more in the 70s and 80s once that term came to be used by gay people. They started preferring that term. You know, I don't use the word queer in this book unless I'm quoting someone who's using it almost always in a derogatory fashion, because that's what queer meant in the period, during the period under examination in my book. Um, and it also, you know, to a lot of gay people, it is, it is still triggering or insulting. Um, I don't define myself by that term. I don't, I don't like it for myself. Other people want to call themselves that. They're perfectly entitled to do so. Um, um, but yeah, homosexual is, look, there's no other real word for homosexuality. I mean, gayness sort of, yes. But I found, you know, to use gayness when I'm writing about the 1940s and 50s, particularly when I'm, I'm quoting a lot from people's speeches, I'm quoting from newspaper and magazine articles. To, for me to sort of insert gayness, my, it, it didn't really flow with, with the prose style. So I would, I would use homosexuality. One theory um, that Walt Odets has offered is the idea of homosexuality with an emphasis on the sexuality has um, come to be this defining idea in contemporary gay men's minds and lives, which is uh, this sort of formal logic statement. If gay men, then gay sex, because gay men are homosexuals defined by their sex. Yeah. And of course, gay sex is wrong, sinful, bad. And then so by transitivity, if I'm a gay man, then I am gay sex. If I am gay sex, then I am wrong. And I see this over and over again, um, where, and you know, for, for high achieving gay professionals in all walks of life, who no matter their achievement, no matter uh, their accomplishments, on some level view something as wrong with them. And so I wonder uh, your, your thoughts about that and that linkage between identifying gay men as gay sex. That's an interesting point. And it is something that I was forced to think about writing this book because you know the term sexual orientation is something, when you think about it, is really not telling the whole story, right? Because gay, gay people are no more defined by their sexual attraction as straight people. And there's a whole, there's a whole other part of being gay, which has nothing to do with which is which is an affectional orientation, right? It's not just sex that makes, or sexual desire that determines your um, sexual orientation. It is also your affectional orientation, right? And there are gay people who are celibate. They're still gay, right? So they're not having sex and their, their attraction to people of their same sex has more to do with just lust, right? Or sexual desire. And so I think we, because we are a minority, we are, we have been defined by purely um, our same sex attraction. And there's more to it than that. It's an emotional attraction that we have to people of the, in the same way that straight people have an emotional attraction to each other. Um, and I, and I, and I, and I felt that way. I felt that there's been too much emphasis on the sexual aspect of 
being gay, certainly in the way that it's been used by our enemies to define us, right? And that's repeatedly you see in the book um, is that is, is, is that homosexuality is defined solely by sex. And I think among many of the closeted people I write about, they, they're the only way that they can express their homosexuality is through these really kind of unfortunate, degrading sexual activities, right? So like meeting in a public bathroom, right? Or being, or, cause that's, there's no other, they're not comfortable um, accepting a, a deeper identity as a gay person that involves, you know, an, an emotional component, um, an intellectual component. It's purely just gonadal, right? And so the expression of that sexuality is, can be very unhealthy. Um, and we, you know, we see that a lot today with gay men, even uh, ones who are maybe somewhat well-adjusted. Uh, the whole problem with crystal meth and sex addiction and all these sorts of problems that gay men deal with in higher numbers. Um, I think it stems, it stems from this, this belief that, you know, being gay is just about sex. That's it. Walt calls it the gay sensibility. And I like that term right. for it um, because it captures something other than uh, yeah. just sex. Yeah. Um, Jamie, what do you hope is your reader's main takeaway? Um, and what is your main takeaway from your research and writing? Uh, there are a few. I think one is just sort of the, the profound significance of this subject of homosexuality in American politics that hasn't, we haven't reckoned with it. It hasn't been really fully explored. It's not something that we've considered in sort of mainstream um, histories, you know, like, uh, you know, it took a gay person to write this book. I don't think it would have mm. been written by a straight historian because to them, for a variety of reasons, I think there's homophobia, even among the more liberal historians, right? There might be some element of homophobia or a belief that this is too touchy of a subject, um, that there's something, you know, we, we don't wanna write about it because it's shameful in some way, um, that they, you know, they weren't gonna write about this. Um, so it, I felt like I had to, you know, I felt like no one else was doing this and it, it kind of had to be me because I'm really fascinated by this subject and, um, I think I'm the guy to do it. So I did it. Um, another uh, takeaway, I think, is really the importance of free expression in the history of not just the gay rights movement, but just sort of gay people. And that, you know, everything from coming out of the closet to, you know, marching outside the White House to the Stonewall Rebellion, all of this stems from a real bedrock belief in free expression and free association, right? Coming out, you're, you're expressing yourself. Um, and that when, when homosexuality was deemed a subject that was too shameful to talk about and it had to be closeted away in secret, when people didn't know openly gay people, they knew gay people, right? But they didn't know openly gay people. And during that era, homophobia was extremely high and people were terrified of gay people. And there were all sorts of crazy conspiracy theories, right? That gays are pedophiles or they're communists or they're fascists. I mean, I explore this all in the book, all the, the different things that have been blamed on gay people for millennia, right? That, um, that doesn't change until gay people start coming out. Um, and so I think free expression is something that's really important to being gay. It's not something that gay people should support. Um, 
And it's a little worrisome that I see all these controversies now um, involving some element of kind of the LGBTQ rainbow where we're shutting people down who we don't agree with or you know Dave Chappelle getting punched on stage by someone who doesn't like a joke he's telling or you know this uproar over Ricky Gervais over comedians I mean gay people I've always known gay people as having like the thickest skins like we're forced to have really thick skin um, and now it seems a lot of us are like the most thin-skinned um, and I find it really uh, unfortunate and almost a kind of betrayal of what it means to be gay. Um, you know, instead of shutting, you know, if there's someone who's a home, I'm, I remember the Westboro Baptist church came to Yale. They were protesting something. I don't know what it was, but these are the people with those big signs, you know, God hates fags. And I remember I was part of a comedy troupe at Yale and like we went and we just sort of interviewed them on camera and I just asked them really silly questions and let them, let them make fools of themselves. That was, that was sort of the natural instinct that I had as a gay person to the Westboro Baptist church. You don't get more nasty homophobic than the Westboro Baptist church. The notion that I would support, you know, the police or something arresting them or banning them as opposed to mocking them, right? As opposed to using my freedom of expression to make, a, make my point about them. That seemed obvious to me. I think gay people have always been really good at that. That's the whole, the whole camp aesthetic comes from gay people, you know, mocking things or, you know, providing their sort of tart commentary on things. And I feel like we've, we're, we're, we're losing that now as we have become much more culturally powerful, right? I mean, gay people are now the, the most powerful, not, I mean, we're, we're now very powerful in culture, we're very influential in, in the culture now. And it's, and it's unfortunate because it seems like we've, we've lost that sort of um, uh, outsider voice that we used to have and we're becoming much more conventional. What's the one predominant feeling you have in reflecting on all this work and research? Because a lot of it's pretty dark. <laughs> yeah, so it is dark, but I would say because it's so dark, I think I have, I have an enormous sense of gratitude mm. um, that things are not dark anymore. Mm. Uh, they're by no means perfect, and so I'm not claiming that. And there are places in this country where it's very difficult to be gay, and we need to do all we can to fix that. Um, but we've, we've progressed a huge amount. And it's because of the people that I write about in this book, a lot of whom we'll never know, right? Just sort of nameless victims, people who, who endured a lot on our, on our behalf so that today, you know, people like you and me can uh, live in a society where we're not discriminated against anymore and where we are equal now. Um, and so I just have an enormous sense of, of gratitude that I live in a country where this was possible, where this amazing, amazing development, this mm. amazing transformation in the status of the homosexual in this country. It's one of the most remarkable transformations in public attitudes in American history. Mm. If, you can, if you consider where gay people were in American society, when my book starts and where they are today, it's, it's incredible. In our final moments here, um, many other questions left for you. I'm curious, 
what gives you the courage to do what you do, to say what you say, to be who you are? Um, you talk about how no one else would have done it. <laughs> um, what, you know, throughout your career as well, though, I mean, what, what do you think um, has been that the source and the continuing source of that courage? Well, I don't think I'm that courageous, but thank you for the compliment. Um, look, I think if you want to, if you're if you want to say something interesting and you want to have an impact, you're going to have to, um, you know, make enemies sometimes, you know, you're going to have, you, if, if you're going to say something interesting and, and, and captivating and compelling, um, particularly about these issues about politics, say, or in the world of ideas, um, you're going to offend some people. Uh, otherwise, you're just going to be boring. You know, people, I think Christopher Hitchens, who was a sort of mentor of mine, um, he said that, in, that the, the worst thing a writer could be called is inoffensive, hmm. um, which doesn't mean you want to go out of your way to be offensive all the time. But, you know, you're going to offend sensibilities. You know, uh, Frank Kameny was offending like the entire country's sensibilities when he decided to sue the government because it was discriminating against him. Uh, you know, Bayard Rustin was offending a lot of people's sensibilities by like refusing to be closeted. He was offending the sensibilities of his, his own allies in the civil rights movement. Mm. Um, and you look back on these individuals and uh, you think, you know what, I might be offending some sensibilities now, but I can look back in time and I can, and I can see that what I'm doing is in the same spirit, I would like to think, as what those people that I admire, what, what, what they did in their lifetimes. That's, that's what I think I try to do. I'm, I'm, I'm a historian. I'm fascinated by history. Uh, there are times that I, you know, I wish I could live more in the past just because I find it so interesting. Mm. And that's, that's really where I kind of draw my inspiration from, are from writers. Um, I mean, I'm a writer, right? So my my heroes are, are writers, other writers. And the ones mm. who, my favorite writers are ones who were controversial. That word, that word controversial. So there's a lot going on with that word, right? They usually mm. just apply that. They, they, they only apply that word. People only apply that word to someone that they don't like often. You know, they call, mm. oh, he's controversial, right? But whatever, we know what the word means. It means you're offending people's sensibilities. And um, that's interesting me that's it that's what that's what makes a writer interesting and worth reading mm. and, that, and that applies to writers i disagree with by the way i mean i i have i have respect for writers who i might violently disagree with them but if they are consistent in their principles and are advocating them without caring what people think about them and they're willing to you know make enemies over it and maybe even lose some opportunities um, because they really believe what they're saying. I respect that immensely. Um, so, yeah. All right, final two questions. What was it like being friends with Larry Kramer? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Larry was a very difficult person. And anyone who was close to him, I think, could tell you that. He could alternate between being the sweetest, softest, you know, cuddly, you know, teddy bear. He was very soft-spoken. Um, at least when I got to know him, obviously in his act-up days, he could be very loud. But when I got to know him, he was 
he was, he was a very soft-spoken man and he would wear all this kind of turquoise jewelry because he thought that it would, you know, the, the healing, the, the, the chakras or whatever. I don't, I don't know, but he was this, you know, he was like this kind of old, uh, nebishy, you know, Jewish grandfather. But then he could get really angry at you and write an email laden, just full of, you know, F-bombs and fuck this and fuck that, and screw <laughs> you. And, and uh, you know, I was witness to that. He didn't do that to me that often, but I witnessed it with other people because he would CC, you know, hundreds of people on these emails and he was going off on someone. So, you know, he, he had a very volatile personality. I mean, that's, you know, it's true what they say. Um, but he was a force of nature and he really was. And uh, I feel privileged to have gotten to know him um, because he was a really important force in gay history. There's no getting around that. Uh, what he did around AIDS was heroic, really. I mean, he was a Cassandra, you know, he was out there shouting about this when no one wanted to hear him, including most gay men didn't want to listen to him. Mm-hmm. That's an example of someone, you know, who's like, really, yeah, he's willing to make enemies. Mm-hmm. And was Larry right about everything? No, he was wrong about lots of things. But on, you know, the big question of AIDS, mm-hmm. when no one else was seeing it, he was right. Um, Anyway, there's one more question you're going to ask me. Your greatest cause for hope and how folks can find you and your book. Oh, my greatest cause for hope. Well, I think just what I said earlier, the fact that gay people could go from being the most despised minority in this country to now 70% of Americans support gay marriage, including a majority of Republicans. That that gives me cause for hope. Hmm. Um, that other worthy, worthy causes can be won through our ability to persuade people and our, mm. our, our um, ability to take advantage of the right that the rights that we have as Americans to free expression and, and debate and free association, that if you have a, a righteous cause, you can, you have, you have the ability to persuade people of it. I think that's my cause for hope. How people can find me. Um, I'm on Twitter. I don't use it that much. Um, there's my website, which I, assume you can provide a link to in your show notes or whatnot. Um, and that's pretty much, yeah, that's pretty much how you'll see me. You'll see my work. Uh, if I write something, it'll be on Twitter. And you can find Jamie's new book out wherever books are sold starting May 31st. Jamie Kirchuk, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure and congratulations to you. Thanks so much for having me, Jonathan. Wonderful. listening to this podcast you have to check out the gay man's life coach at jonathanherzogcoach.com it is the community of gay men transforming their lives to feel better and get exactly what they want join us at jonathanherzogcoach.com and book a one-on-one consult today and if you have one minute it would be so awesome if you could leave a review on this podcast so we can help spread the word and help more gay men see you soon